you're probably familiar with a movie that came out well over 10 years ago now called The Help. Are you familiar with that? And the, it's the story about, you know, this young Arthur decides she wants to write a book in her hometown. And she decides she wants to write a book about the perspective of life from the perspective of um, the black maids who take care of white families, in particular white children. And there are many quotable lines from the movie. And, um, but there's one that is especially applicable for our service today. The main character of the movie is Abilene. You know, she's the, the maid that kind of is the one who's the first one that begins to consider participating in this writing project. And she cares for a little baby called, called um, May Mobley. Do you remember when she's getting May Mobley dressed every day, she has this one little phrase she says to the baby every day. And she says it to the baby as in a closing scene almost, right? And she says, you is kind, you is smart, and you is important. You know, what is she doing when she says that to that child? She's taking values that she wants that child to grow up into, and she's placing them there in front of her for her to see. You know, every parent aspires for their children to grow up and have certain qualities about them. In my research, looking things over, the quality that people want the most in their children is that of being responsible. People want, they want to speak these values in their children, and they want their children to grow up and be this way. And so other qualities that are high on the list of what people ask or hope their children are, are kindness, right? Honesty. They want their kids to be independent. They want their kids to be respectful. And like I said, the number one quality on the research list was to be responsible. To be responsible. So, but now none of those lists, not a single list was there. No one said that they were hoping their kid would grow up to be meek. Or poor in spirit. Or to be one who is a child who mourns. For things in this life. But in our passage today, those are the exact qualities that Jesus is asking and talking about for his people. Open up your Bible to, to, John, uh, to Matthew um, 5. And let me just set this up for us again. You know, Jesus has just been baptized by his cousin John in chapter 3. And then he goes in the desert for 40 days. And he fasts there. And there he's also tempted um, during the course of that time by Satan. And he comes out of that, and it says that he goes right into Galilee. And we read in verse 17, uh, chapter 3 there, I think it is, maybe in 4, I might have that wrong, um, that he goes and he begins to teach in, in Galilee. And it says, from that time forward, Jesus began to preach and say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Chapter 4, verse 17. Re from that time forward, he begins to pre preach and say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And once he begins to preach, he also begins to cause disciples. We see that in verses 18 through 22 of chapter 4. He begins to cause disciples to himself. And then he comes to this place and he, in Galilee where he begins to preach. He's teaching. He's healing people of sicknesses as well as demonic attacks. And this thing happens where a multitude, many, many people begin to follow him. And that many people, you can imagine that there's many people there who are there because 
they, um, it's kind of like a carnival. You know, you want to see the freak show. You want to see him do his stuff. There's people there who probably honestly, earnestly questioning, like, who is this man? What is he all about? Is it possible that he could be a prophet or the Messiah? Is this someone that we should be paying attention to or not? But either way, he has a multitude now who's begun to follow him. And that sets up our scene in chapter 5. And there it begins in verse 1. He says, And he saw the multitudes, and he went up to the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and began to teach them. So what he does is he, he goes up here, and he sits down with his disciples. You know, consider what the process that we're seeing here. He's gathered them together. He's begun to teach them. And this is this time where he's beginning to speak to his disciples specifically. But also there's this multitude of people who have followed. And it'd be kind of like someone actually sat near me when I spoke. And the rest of you are multitudes, all right? Twelve of you actually would sit near me. And I would speak to you and everyone else just to get to hear it. You know, that's what it would be like kind of, you know. And he begins to proclaim. And what it says, he's proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. That's what it says in chapter 423. And so here we are, and he begins to proclaim this gospel. So let's read in our, in our passage here. Uh, let's go ahead and start in verse 1, and we'll read to verse 9, okay? And when he saw the multitudes, he went up on the mountain, and, he, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth, and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who, are, who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. We're going to stop right there for today. So here, he's just walked through this, this list of things. And he says, these are the people, and as we talked about last week, when we talked about being blessed, he says, these are the people who begin to have that inner peace about them, that inner solitude about them that is undisrupted. It is not bothered by all the things going on around them. But it's interesting that when he talks about, now remember, we're talking about he's laying open the kingdom of heaven here. And what he's begun to do is says, these are the people who are going to be in this kingdom of heaven. And note, he begins to just walk through these kind of characteristics that no one really thinks about of the kind of people you want in your kingdom. When you think about this, you say, when you think about even when you're going to vote next month for your county commission, for your, your township supervisors, when you vote for whatever positions are available, you're going to be looking for people and you're going to say, I want a guy who's strong in his opinion. You know, you're going to think through all these things. None of these guys are put on their political stuff. Hi, I'm meek. I'm mournful. I'm poor in spirit. Please vote for me. That's not going to happen. And yet Jesus says in his kingdom, that's who he's looking for. That's exactly who he's looking for. So let's look at this very first one. He says here in verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The poor in spirit. That is, he's speaking about someone who has this sense of utter poverty in their spiritual life. It's the very first quality in a kingdom citizen is to know your spiritual needs, 
the absolute destitute position you have spiritually in life, that you bring nothing to the table, that spiritually speaking, you have nothing to offer, and that really, matter of fact, the scripture even teaches us that we are dead in our sins. But once we come alive in Christ, once he has redeemed us, we still bring nothing to the table. Positionally, we are all kinds of things. We talked about that in being justified several weeks ago. We are sure of our salvation. But he says that what he's looking for in these people, in us, is that we realize we bring nothing to the table. We are absolutely spiritually impoverished. You think about what it means to be impoverished. It, it means that you have no way of purchasing for yourself. It means you have no way of gaining anything for yourself. If you've ever been broke, you understand. And if you've been absolutely broke, I mean just absolutely bone-crushing broke, you know you've got nothing at all. And you have no way of getting anything. That is what he says about these kingdom citizens, that that's where he wants them to be spiritually. Spiritually broke. Unable of adding anything to themselves. Unable to be unable to accomplish anything spiritually. To be totally powerless. And this very next one he says is, to blessed are those who mourn. Now, what I'd like you to do is consider that there's a progression in these qualities. And then at the, and that when we get to the fourth one, the fourth one is kind of like a filter that the last three come through. So the first one he says that he's looking for citizens who are absolutely spiritually impoverished. The next one he says are people who mourn. And this, this word for mourn here is the strongest Greek word in the language for mourning. It, it, it is typically used only for mourning the dead. So it is connected to a deep, deep, intense, personal loss. Now that's not the person I want to be all the time. It's not the person you want to be all the time. Someone who is always, always has this understanding of mourning. And they are someone who mourns deeply, personally, about intimate loss. And yet, what he's speaking of here when he talks about that he wants blessed are those who mourn is he's not speaking about someone who mourns for those who lost. He is speaking about those who have this sense of their utter sinfulness and their weakness and that they have no way of overcoming it. So in other words, the very first quality is to, be, is to understand that you have nothing to bring. You're spiritually impoverished. The second quality is that you understand that and your response to that is mourning. Your response to that is just, woe is me. Your response to that is, is what am I to do? If you can imagine that, that, that sense of loss that you might have experienced sometime in your life, he's saying that is the response to being poor in spirit. To mourn what you don't have. You follow the next one. He says, blessed are, those, um, blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Well, perhaps your Bible may say meek. It might say meek. But meek is not weak at all. 
Rather, it could very well be someone of great physical strength. It could be someone who knows how to, to control, who has all kinds of power or influence even, perhaps you might say. But meekness is someone who has that and is able to control that. They have a controlled spirit about them. It points to genuine humility. So in the progression of our text, this type of meekness or gentleness is a natural outgrowth of someone who's realized their spiritual poverty and is left with nothing to brag about or any pride at all, and they come to the place where they, they are truly humbled. Truly humbled about their spiritual position. It's often pointed out that Jesus was considered meek, but that he still used a whip in the temple and routinely verbally sparred with the Pharisees. So being meek doesn't mean that one is not able to insert themselves, but the key is this. One author said it like this, meekness is not the absence of assertion. It's the absence of self-assertion. And I think that is perfectly said. Meekness is not that you never assert, that you don't even take out for someone else. Meekness is that you, ha you never self-assert yourself, that you never put yourself forward in that way. It is a great defining feature of pride, I mean, of, of humility. And actually, it's a great defining feature of pride too, isn't it? That self-assertion, putting oneself up front, forward, is a sign of pride. So our first three characteristics leave us with someone who knows they're spiritually bankrupt, who earnestly mourns that position, and finally is humbled because they've come to an understanding of that. And, and verse 6 is pivotal. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. The, the problem with this particular verse in Western culture for 99.9% .9 of us is that 99.9% .9 of us have never truly been desperate for food or water. We've never been in that place where we would do anything at all to be able to have something to eat. That finding something to eat meant that I went to all kinds of desperate measures. To finding that drink of water to keep me alive meant that I went to desperate measures. I don't think there's many of us that I could speak to here that would understand that. And so I think there's something lacking for us in understanding the depth of the spiritual hunger and thirst that he's talking about in the passage. Because that's what he's speaking of. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. In other words, just like someone who is absolutely about to starve to death and they would do anything to have something to eat, about to, to, to die of thirst, they would do anything for a drink. And he says, that level of desperation is the level of desperation that my citizens are for righteousness. That they would do anything to be righteous. To find righteousness. To champion righteousness. So the mental illness image here, the mental image here is of someone that has this intense 
desire. And the object of that desire is righteousness. Psalm 42 has one of those verses. There's many others we can look to. Psalm 42 is one that many of us are familiar with. And it's the one that, as the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for the living God. So here is the situation that we have in verses, um, the, the verses we've gone through so far, 3, 5, 6, and, and, and 3, 4, 5, and 6. That is a person who is spiritually bankrupt, and in knowing that, they mourn that bankruptness. They are deeply saddened over it. But not only that, they are become truly humbled because of it. And that humility... That lack of righteousness on their own part, that lack of ability to conjure up anything of spiritual value puts them in a position where they truly long and thirst for righteousness because they cannot produce it on their own. Because they don't have it, it's not within their reach. Now then, what I'd like to suggest is that verses 3, 4, Three, four, and five directly correspond to verses seven, eight, and nine. So the man who is spiritually bankrupt and understands he has nothing, it's very easy to see how that person can become merciful in verse seven. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. So can you see a connection there at all? That the man who has been is totally spiritually bankrupt, the man who has nothing at all understands what it means to extend mercy to others. That blessed are the pure in heart. So the man who totally and, and, and completely mourns. In verse 4, blessed are those who mourn. In verse 8, blessed are the pure in heart. For that mourning that process of understanding all that puts them in a place where they seek purity in the heart, of the heart in others and in themselves. The one with the broken heart now becomes the one with the pure heart. It's this purity of heart that we see on the outside is a reflection of what is truly on the inside. What did the Pharisees scold? What did Jesus scold the Pharisees for? More than once, that they did things only to be seen and to be praised for. He talked about them praying in front, giving in front of others. And what did he do? He scolded them for that prideful heart inside. So instead, Jesus wants the exact opposite of that. He wants his children to have a pure motive for their service, for their personal discipleship. And so the, the poor in spirit correlates to mercy and the mourn correlates to purity of heart and meekness correlates to being a peacemaker. <coughs> Think about this. One commentator stated, the meek know themselves are without merit. They stop promoting themselves, stop grasping for privileges and recognition. And when they stop demanding Peace tends to emerge. For those who, for most strife stems from self-assertion. So did you get that? He says here, when he says that in verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God. 
absolutely correlating that to blessed are the gentle. Those who do not self-assert themselves usually don't find themselves in the middle of conflict. And he says here that without self-assertion, without demanding our place, without demanding our rights, we become peacemakers. The world says these kind of things. Blessed are the strong, they'll rule the earth. Blessed are the mighty, they'll rise to power. Blessed are the rich, they'll inherit the earth. Blessed are the influential, they'll be favored. Blessed are the popular, for they'll be loved. Blessed are the gifted, for they'll be followed. Blessed are the beautiful, for they'll be admired. Jesus isn't looking to populate his kingdom with people who are mighty or strong or influential or popular or gifted or beautiful. And throughout the ages, he's demonstrated that time and time and time again. When he wanted to set aside a people for himself, he went to a godless man of no repute at all named Abram and set him aside for that. And you just begin to follow through Scripture and never once did God ever go and pick the popular, the beautiful, the strong, the mighty. In the case of Israel, when they wanted a king, who did they go after? The man who was taller than all the rest. The man who looked good but didn't have the character to rule. And Jesus and, and God went after the one that no one else even considered. The runt of the litter. They didn't even bring him forward to be considered as king. And you go through the people that Jesus chooses to use to achieve his purposes. We've been through this before. You know this. But we have to remind ourselves all the time. Citizens of the kingdom are the immigrants, the homeless, the prostitutes, the liars, the cheaters, all of those who have found themselves without anything to bring forward, without anything to offer. The fishermen, just the plain, just general laborers. The people he's looking for in his kingdom are people who understand that they do not bring anything to the table, spiritually speaking. And that everything that they do bring to the table, matter of fact, I'd even go so far as to say that anything the world is applauding you for, anything that the world is, is saying this is great about you, you'll grow far, you'll be great at this. Even, I would go so far as to say, even people in the church who say that about us, that that is not what the Lord is looking for. He's looking for a heart that is humbled. He's looking for a heart that does not say, you did this to me and you owe me. He's not looking for a heart that says, I deserve this. As a matter of fact, that's even where we get into trouble. We talked about that several weeks ago when we talked about the, the, the father and the prodigal son and, and the older son. And the problem with the older son was, that he felt like he deserved something. And the prodigal son was absolutely a citizen of heaven, for he was destitute, and he felt like he deserved nothing. And that is a picture-perfect example of a citizen of heaven. It was not the older son who had done everything right his entire life. It was not the older son who was the model of citizens. I mean, he wouldn't get the, the good citizenship award every time. It was not that one. It was the one who had said, I want to do it my way. And went out and did it his way and found himself in utter poverty. Destitute in every way. 
with nothing at all to bring home to his father. And he says, Father, forgive me, I've sinned. I don't even deserve to be called your son. Would you just take me as a hired hand? That is a citizen of heaven. That is what he's looking for from us. That is who he wants you and I to be. Not someone who says, I have so much to give to the church. Not someone who says that I think that Jesus needs me. But someone who says, I need Jesus. I need Jesus. And I'll take all that he gives me and more. That is the citizen of heaven that these passages are beginning to portray. That humility, that destitute nature, that coming to the Lord with empty hands and asking, just pleading, throwing themselves at him, says, I have nothing. And the Father gives everything. And spiritually speaking for us, stepping away from the prodigal son now, the father, you know, the father gave that son the robes, the ring, the festival. And what the father gives us is a certainty of our salvation. He gives us a, that inner, that, that blessedness we talked about last week. He gives us so much on the spiritual level that we cannot see but is so true. And that makes our lives beautiful in this life. Even amidst hardship, it still gives us peace. It still gives us beauty. And that's who he is. And that's what he wants to give you today. If you've never trusted Christ before, today's your day. What reason would you have to wait? What is it that this world is going to give to you when you step off of this parking lot that Jesus can't give you more and more and more of? If you've never trusted Christ for your personal salvation, for your personal Savior, for the forgiveness of your sins, then today's your day. You should do that today. And you do it in your own words, whatever words they may be, but it's just simply this cry out to him. It says, I know I'm a sinner and I know I need a Savior and he's telling me you're it and I'm willing to believe that. Can you please save me? It's as simple as that. You don't have to know theology. That is just messy up. It is that destitute heart that is portrayed in this passage. I've got nothing. And I come to you with that. And that's what he longs for. For us to come to him and say, I've got nothing. I cannot save myself. Will you please save me? This passage is not written as a way to get saved. I want to be clear about that. This passage is not written as a way to be saved. This passage is written to those who are saved, who are longing to be citizens of the kingdom. Today, if you're not a citizen of the kingdom, I would love for you to come and talk to me and let's change that today before you leave. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you love us just as we are. We thank you that we do not have to bring anything to you to earn your love, your affirmation, your favor. We understand that Jesus did that for us. 
but we understand that more in our heads than we do in our hearts. Help us to grow in our hearts to embrace that truth and to find it to be an overflowing joy and peace that comes out of us. We look to you for that. Thank you for knitting us together as a church family. And today, Father, if there's anyone here who does not know you, I pray that you would just be working in their heart to encourage them to come and talk to me. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.